this is damn interesting. Headphones recommended. In 1885, an author named James B. Ward published a pamphlet telling of a long-lost treasure available to anyone clever enough to solve the puzzle associated with it. Ward reported that around 1817, a man named Thomas Jefferson Beale had been the leader of an expedition to the American Southwest, primarily concerned with hunting buffalo and or bears. Beale's group had instead stumbled upon gold and silver deposits in what is now Colorado. Agreeing to keep it all a secret, Beale's team had spent the better part of two years quietly mining. Then had taken the metals to Virginia by wagon and buried them all in a vault underground between 1819 and 1821. Beale had written three notes explaining where the treasure was and who had the legal rights to shares in it, encrypting each of these using a different text. However, Beale had vanished after leaving the notes with a friend. Eventually, the second of the three texts was deciphered using a slightly altered version of the Declaration of Independence. It specified which county in Virginia the treasure was hidden in and referred the reader to the first of the notes for details. But the first and the third notes remained stubbornly undeciphered. Neither the Declaration of Independence nor any other ciphertext source produced a readable message out of the first note. Beale had done too good of a job encrypting his texts. Or had he? Even as the field of cryptography advanced and modern computers were invented and directed at the ciphers, the content remained frustratingly out of reach. The tantalizing mystery of where in Virginia there might be an enormous cache of treasure has turned into a broader question. Did Thomas J. Beale even exist, or was James B. Ward playing an enormous practical joke? The problem with the second interpretation is that Ward was not known to be a prankster. Could his pamphlet have been motivated by something stranger still? By Ward's account, Beale had written the three notes, encrypted them, and locked them in an iron box. He turned the box over to an innkeeper named Robert Morris in 1822. Beale had told Morris that he would be sending along the keys to the ciphers, but also instructed Morris not to open the box unless he or his colleagues failed to return within a decade. Morris heard nothing from Beale over the next decade, or ever again. Only in 1845 did he finally relent, having decided that Beale probably wasn't coming back. Morris opens the box. Inside were two letters and three encrypted notes. Morris tried to decipher the latter himself, but met with no success. He gave up, and upon his death, the iron box was inherited by a friend. Morris's friend was reportedly extremely pleased when an undisclosed accident revealed the secret of the paper marked 2. The cipher was a sequence of numbers. Each number corresponded to a word in the U.S. Declaration of Independence. The first letter of each of those words spells the plain text with a few modifications for errors in spelling. 115 instituted 
I, 73, hold H, 24, another A. With the corrections made and the punctuation added, the text comes out as follows, describing a treasure that would have been worth approximately $65 million in modern American dollars. I have deposited in the county of Bedford, about four miles from Buford's, in an excavation or vault six feet below the surface of the ground, the following articles, belonging jointly to the parties whose names are given in number three herewith. The first deposit consisted of 1,014 pounds of gold and 3,812 pounds of silver, deposited November 1819. The second was made December 1821 and consisted of 1,907 pounds of gold and 1,288 of silver, also jewels obtained in St. Louis in exchange for silver to save transportation and valued at $13,000. The above is securely packed in iron pots with iron covers. The vault is roughly lined with stone, and the vessels rest on solid stone and are covered with others. Paper number one describes the exact locality of the vault, so that no difficulty will be had in finding it. However, the anonymous friends had been unable to decipher either the first or the third notes. So Morris's friends had reached out to Ward, and the two of them had made arrangements to publish the pamphlet, hoping that doing the 19th century equivalent of crowdsourcing the job would unlock the other two ciphers and the treasure. Ward stated that Morris's friend had no doubt that one of the many who will give the subject attention, someone through fortune or accident, will speedily solve their mystery and secure the prize which has eluded him. But no one did. In spite of a Cheyenne legend from around 1820 that tells of gold and silver from the west being taken east to be buried in the mountains, researchers began to wonder if the entire story had been made up. After all, no one claimed to have seen the original Beale documents, except for Ward himself. In the late 1960s, Carl Hammer, an employee of the company that produced Univac computers, turned his machine's attention to the Beale ciphers. Hammer did not get especially far, but concluded that the patterns in the two undeciphered notes seemed to be non-random. This was looking promising for Ward and Beale, since such non-randomness would be expected if the notes had a true decipherable text behind them. In other words, if Beale or maybe Ward had simply made up gibberish, it would be highly unlikely to show this degree of systematicity. Later on, cryptographer Jim Gilligley made a startling secondary discovery. Although Hammer had been correct, and the encrypted text was indeed fairly non-random, it also didn't seem to correspond to the statistical properties of the English language. In fact, attempting to use the Declaration of Independence again on the first note yielded several sequences along the lines of A B F D E F G H I I I K L M M N O H P P. With an incorrect key, an attempted decipherment should necessarily produce arbitrary-looking sequences of letters, and these were quite orderly, suspiciously orderly. Now, the very premise of the ciphers was completely open to question. The decryption of the second note had been built into the story that Ward had written down in his pamphlet. Was it possible that the entire story was an invention of Ward's? The pamphlet's author had charged quite a lot of money for copies of his story, 50 cents, now more than $13, and had stated outright that he anticipated selling it in large numbers. Could Ward's pamphlet have been both a hoax and a money-making scheme? Detective and skeptic Joe Nickel published an analysis in 1982 evaluating the matter using several types of evidence, beginning with the historical record. 
The text of Ward's pamphlet had set Beale up to be untraceable. Ward reports that Morris said, Curiously enough, Beale never adverted to his family or to his ancestors. And not just Beale, but also Morris and Ward himself were potentially fictional. Nickel finds that Robert Morris does seem to have been a real innkeeper in the correct location. But the pamphlet claimed that he'd been running the Washington Hotel in 1820 and in 1822. The record says that Morris did not start in this position until the end of 1823. Whether Thomas J. Beale existed is unclear. Nickel uncovers no straightforward evidence that he did. Author James B. Ward does appear to have existed. He was registered for a time as a Freemason, and at least one early aspiring codebreaker claimed to have visited him around the beginning of the 20th century, but no one knew him very well. Acquaintances appear to have described Ward as a man of integrity, but there was little more than that. The language used throughout Ward's story is another aspect of the pamphlet that can be analyzed for period authenticity. Nicol points out that this extends to the letters purported to have been written by Beale to Morris and locked in the iron box in 1822. Tellingly, some of the words that Beale supposedly employed in his letters to Morris seemed too new to have been likely to be found in the 1820s. Stampede and improvise were not known to have existed in written English before 1840, and the gerund form stampeding was unattested before 1883. Although it was possible that the letters by Beale contained early uses of these words that happened to be a fair bit older than the oldest known, the fact that there were three of them in two short letters was quite improbable. Nickel also highlights how Ward's story has some convenient holes in it. The pamphlet's reprint of the Declaration of Independence contains a few errors, precisely the ones that were required to unlock the message in text number two. This suggests that the same person was responsible for coming up with both the erroneous reprint and the original cipher. It also seems awfully convenient that the only text that had been deciphered was the one that provided all of the tantalizing details about the treasure, except the precise location. Ward's pamphlet eagerly promised that the first note describes the exact locality of the vault so that no difficulty will be had in finding it. Meanwhile, the third text, which supposedly contains the identification of 30 men entitled to parts of the treasure, is too short to be able to realistically contain that amount of information. Nichols' other major angle is that of writing style. Literature scholars have long been aware that every writer has a consistent but unique writing style, much like a fingerprint in terms of its potential for identification. Nickel and colleague Jean Pivel analyzed the styles of Ward versus several contemporaneous literate Virginia men as controls. Among other testing results, they found nearly identical average sentence length, as well as very similar proportions of the words the and and of. The three controls are noticeably different from Ward slash Beale and also distinct from each other. A later analysis by cryptographer Lewis Krupp of how many words of each potential length were used by Ward and Beale agreed. Pivel concluded, The striking similarities in the Ward-Beale documents argue that one author was responsible for both. Although two writers might share one idiosyncratic characteristic, the sharing of several extraordinary features constitutes, I think, conclusive evidence that the same hand wrote both documents. As Nickel acknowledges, the big remaining question is what a man described as being of great integrity would be doing engineering an elaborate and profitable hoax. It is possible, of course, that Ward's good reputation was unearned or that financial desperation drove him to portray his usual values. 
But there is a third, stranger explanation that Nickel refers to, that the whole thing might have been a metaphorical illustration of Freemason philosophy. The practices of the Freemasons often involve symbols and allegories, and some of Ward's words and phrases are known to have been associated with Freemasonry in general. The potential solution to the Beale ciphers that fell out of this is that the treasure could be the endpoint of a rewarding moral-slash-spiritual journey rather than a literal stash of silver and gold lying somewhere in Virginia. Could Ward have been trying to reform the greedy and the materialistic? He does slyly warn his pamphlet readers not to get too obsessed with the treasure. I would say a word to those who may take an interest in the ciphers and give them a little advice acquired by bitter experience. It is to devote only such time as can be spared from your legitimate business to the task, and if you can spare no time, let the matter alone. Should you disregard my advice, do not hold me responsible that the poverty you have courted is more easily found than accomplishment of your wishes. To this day, the first and third Beale ciphers have never been cracked. Cryptography enthusiasts, research groups, and even self-declared psychics have all attempted to decipher the texts to no avail. However, even if the Beale ciphers were indeed a prank or a subtle Freemason parable, they do have a legitimate claim to fame as an early surviving example of cryptography in American history and popular culture. But there has been no success when it comes to a straightforward cryptographic approach to resolving the two encrypted texts. Cryptographers now tend to dismiss it as a hoax. Lewis Crew, writing in the journal Cryptologia in 1988, called it a bamboozlement. This hasn't kept opportunists from racing to Virginia to make unauthorized digs in Bedford County. However, none of those people have been known to have found anything along the lines of what Ward claimed Beale had hidden. Neither approach to the Beale ciphers has uncovered any evidence of the literal treasure that Ward's pamphlet described. Whether anyone has started from the supposed story of Thomas J. Beale and found treasure worth $65 million in the form of emotional or spiritual well-being is a different matter altogether. This episode of Damn Interesting was titled 89-263-201-500-337-480 It was written by Marisa Brooke and narrated by Simon Whistler. Sound design and music by Alan Bellows. Speaking of cryptography, we'll soon be moving our site to a new web server, one with sufficiently beefy hardware to enable HTTPS on all pages. In case we don't talk to you before then, we wish you a pleasant winter solstice and a delightful new calendar day. Thanks to all of our donors out there. Usually December is a rough month for donations, but we've already met our monthly goal this time around. And thanks to all of you who have left reviews for our podcast on iTunes. Those are super helpful. This was damn interesting. <laughs>